Again, happy Thanksgiving, everyone. But enough of that. Enough Thanksgiving, because I, as I mentioned, I've got a whopper of a story to tell you. It's a good one. These last few chapters in Acts are one big, long narrative. It's not really broken up, ever. And it involves Paul being one, he goes from one form of custody to the other, and he's giving speech after speech to official after official. So a lot of it's very formal, kind of boring, if I allowed to say that. But stuck in the midst of all this procedural drama, there are some rock and action sequences. And today is one of them. This is definitely uh, one of the more high-tension action-packed parts of Acts. It's a great story. And as we dig further into it, like a hungry Lance family tackling a turkey dinner, uh, hopefully we'll be nourished by the big lesson, the big lesson, the centerpiece turkey, if you will, that we all can't wait to dig into, as well as the smaller lessons. The, the side courses, the mashed potatoes, and the beans, and the stuffing. So let's get to the good stuff, um, beginning in verse 12. The next morning, the Jews formed a conspiracy and bound themselves with an oath not to eat or drink until they had killed Paul. More than 40 men were involved in this plot. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, We've taken a solemn oath not to eat anything until we have killed Paul. Now then, You and the Sanhedrin petitioned the commander to bring him before you on the pretext of wanting more accurate information about his case. You're ready to kill him before he gets there. So that's the plot. That's the drama. They're going to ambush Paul. They're going to ask the the Romans to bring Paul in for a meeting. And on his way in, they're going to assassinate him. But when the son of Paul's sister heard of this plot, he went into the barracks and told Paul. Then Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the commander. He has something to tell him. So he took him to the commander. The centurion said, Paul, the prisoner, sent for me and asked me to bring this young man to you because he has something to tell you. The commander took the young man by the hand, drew him aside and asked, What is it you want to tell me? He said, so this is Paul's nephew, saying, The Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul before the Sanhedrin tomorrow on the pretext of wanting more accurate information about him. Don't give in to them, because more than 40 of them are waiting in ambush for him. They have taken an oath not to eat or drink until they have killed him. They are ready now, waiting for your consent to their request. The commander dismissed the young man and cautioned him, Don't tell anyone that you have reported this to me. So what's going to happen? Then he called two of his centurions and ordered them, Get ready a detachment of 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, and 200 spearmen to go to Caesarea at nine tonight. Provide mounts for Paul so that he may be taken safely to Governor Felix. He wrote a letter as follows. From Claudius Lysias to His Excellency Governor Felix, Greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and they were about to kill him, but I came with my troops and rescued him, for I had learned that he is a Roman citizen. I wanted to know why they were accusing him, so I brought him to their Sanhedrin. I found that the accusation had to do with questions about their law, but there was no charge against him that deserved death or imprisonment. When I was informed of a plot to be carried out against this man, I sent him to you at once. I also ordered his accusers to present to you their case against him. So the soldiers, carrying out their orders, took Paul with them during the night and brought him as far as Antipatris. The next day they left the cavalry, sorry, the next day they let the cavalry cavalry go on with him while they returned to the barracks. When the cavalry arrived in Caesarea, they delivered the letter to the governor and handed Paul over to him. The governor read the letter and asked what province he was from. Learning he was from Cilicia, he said, I will hear your case when your accusers get here. Then he ordered that Paul be kept under guard in Herod's palace. All right. 
So that story has everything you'd want in a story. There's assassination attempts with high stakes for both our hero Paul and the assassins. They won't eat or drink until he's dead. It's got family reconciliation. It's got military and political behind-the-scenes drama. Whatever you want in a movie, this has got it. So let's grab a carving knife and dig in a little deeper. When you heard about the 40 extremists and their plan to, to not eat anything until Paul is dead, did you have the same question as me? Did they follow through on this until Paul was actually dead? Because Paul lives at least another five years after this. And even an extremist can't go five years without food. So my question is, did any of them follow through on this right to death? Did any of them refuse to eat and drink literally until Paul was dead? Or did they realize they were foiled and like, okay, fine, I guess we'll eat now. So much for that vow. Of course, that that's crazy. Super extreme. But the saddest part about it is how the Sanhedrin, the legal council of the Jewish people, signs off on a murder that's both immoral and illegal, using deception to accomplish their unlawful goal. They really show how low they will stoop um, and how far away they are from the will of God. It's also, I think, a pretty good sign for the assassins that they are working contrary to the will of God also. If you take an oath that you're going to do this thing for God, this super sacred thing, you assume that God will honor that oath. But when God doesn't honor the oath and you don't get to assassinate a guy, then perhaps God is not with you. Maybe you're a little murder happy for no reason. But these 40 assassins, there's a long biblical tradition of of characters who make vows that end up making them look totally foolish. Here's a couple. In chapter 11 of the book of Judges, there's a strong man named Jephthah. He is a hero for Israel, as all the judges were, defeated some enemy nation. One day he's chasing the Ammonites, enemies of God's people, and he makes the following vow. This is from chapter 11. He says, If you give the Ammonites into my hands, God, whatever comes out of the door of my house to meet me when I return in triumph from the Ammonites will be the Lord's, and I will sacrifice it as a burnt offering. I'm not sure what he anticipated would be the first thing to come out of his house, I don't know if he thought maybe it was a sheep or a dog or I I don't know what he assumed it would be, but it couldn't have been anything good and it wasn't good. The first thing that when he gets home, the first thing that comes out to greet him is his only daughter dancing and playing the tambourine and so happy to see her dad again. And he is crushed because he made a vow to God and he actually breaks the news to her what he has to do. And she's she weeps but says, okay, since I'm a virgin, let me go party with my friends in the hills for a month and then come back and you can fulfill your vow. And he does, which is super rough. But it was a really foolish vow. The result is the loss of his only daughter. Or there's this story in Matthew 14 of Herod, who oversaw, I think it was the same Herod who oversaw Jesus' uh, crucifixion. But there's a party, and Herod's got all the important guests at the party, and his niece is dancing, and he, he thinks her dancing is so lovely that he promises her anything she wishes for. He, he makes a vow, whatever you ask for, I will give to you. So she goes back and consults with her mom, her mom, Herodias, who is Herod's sister-in-law, and they are in some kind of inappropriate relationship. And John the Baptist is sitting in prison, and he's been condemning them for this inappropriate relationship. And Herodias is sick of hearing about it. So she says, here's what I want, daughter. I want the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And so 
the, the daughter tells Herod this, and Herod, because he's made a vow, goes and beheads John the Baptist, the greatest man to live before Jesus. And he didn't want to do this. He has respect for John, and he also fears how John's many supporters will react to Herod if he took John's life. So he doesn't want to do this, but because he made a foolish vow, and because he would have looked bad in front of all his guests, and he wants to retain that power, he follows through with it. So again, the greatest man to live before Jesus was executed because of a foolish, whimsical vow made by a foolish, whimsical king. In all of this, this is one of our small lessons, our our appetizer lessons, based around the danger of making promises, oaths, and vows in the presence of God. There is a danger there. Jephthah's devotion, sorry, Jephthah's devotion to defeating his enemies, the enemies of God's people, was commendable. It was a good thing at that time to want to do. However, the recklessness of his promise to God was not a good commendable thing. Herod couldn't have cared less about the presence of God. He, he was not a man, unlike Jephthah, who was a hero, Herod couldn't care less about God. Um, he couldn't care less that a prophet, a powerful prophet, was destroyed by the shrapnel of his pride. Um, he was concerned only with his social and political standing. He didn't care about a good man. He had him executed just to save face. And these 40 assassins in the book of Acts, they're convinced their fanaticism is a service to the God that they worship. While the law-keeping Sanhedrin agree. They're the keepers of the law. They're the ones who decide for Israel what is right and what is wrong. And they sign off on this thing. Well, the majority anyway. The minority Pharisees, we just saw in the story before, they defended Paul. They probably were not informed of this. But the Sanhedrin as a whole sign off on this. All of this, I think, displays their distance from the heart of a God who demonstrates and requires sacrifice and grace, not violence and destruction. I think they show how far from the heart of God they are. And so in all three of these, Jephthah, Herod, the assassins, you could add in King Saul who made a vow, nobody will eat and drink uh, anything until some army is destroyed. His son, Jonathan, hadn't heard this. He dips his spear in some honey and eats some honey and is refreshed and wins the battle. And then Saul says, oh, great, now I have to murder you because you broke this vow I made. He doesn't end up doing it. But there's all these stories of foolish vows made by people who didn't think of the consequences of making such vows in the presence of God. Here's, I think, the first first lesson. Make sure you are aligned with the will of God before you commit yourself to anything. Anything. Check scripture to see if it aligns with the character and nature of God. Make sure you're aligned with the will of God before you commit yourself. And maybe think twice before you make a reckless vow or promise. This is unlikely, but the story of scripture say someone you care about might end up burned alive or beheaded or starved to death if you are reckless with the promises you make. That probably won't happen. It's more likely your car will break down or you'll lose some money. But I don't know what it'll be. But just be careful of what you commit yourself to. Let's get back to the crazy story in Acts. The assassins would have almost certainly been successful, even at a great loss of their own lives, because Paul would have been heavily guarded even without knowledge of an assassination attempt. And if they had attempted to murder Saul, some of them would have been killed by the Romans as well. Um, and they would have been successful had it not been for one small informant, Paul's nephew. Now, many have wondered how this young man came into the knowledge of this highly secretive plan. 
Surely the assassins would have wanted to to keep their plan away from from anybody who could have let Paul know about it, obviously. Most likely the entire Sanhedrin wasn't even in the know, as I mentioned, because the Pharisees, they were on Paul's side. They wouldn't have want these assassins wouldn't have told the Pharisees in the Sanhedrin because they would have just went and told Paul. They sided with Paul. So how did one of Paul's own family members find out about it? Well, here's where we see something beautiful that I hinted at earlier. A family reconciliation. Most commentators that I read think that Paul had been disowned completely by his family because he forsake his, his upbringing as a Pharisee to follow this ragtag group of Jesus people. He was most likely totally cut off from his family, disowned. Whatever inheritance he was allowed, and it would have been substantial because his father was a Roman citizen, he was cut off from that. He was disavowed. He speaks in Philippians 3 about giving up everything to follow Jesus. This everything almost certainly included his closest loved ones, his family. Because he was a Pharisee at one point, Paul probably was married at one point, uh, probably had children, but you really get the impression from both Acts and Paul's letters that he's single. So he probably had to give up his marriage, his family, even his kids, if he had them, to follow Jesus. Which is crazy. But it shows just how much his family hated him. And in fact, would have gone out of their way to want Paul dead to save face with the other people around them. So they may have been in on the plot, is what I'm saying, and likely were. Maybe his nephew's dad was on the Sanhedrin and heard about it. We're not sure. We're not sure exactly. But most likely, the fact that his nephew is in on it shows that Paul's own family wants him dead and we're in on the plot. However, some bonds are never fully broken. Paul's nephew, who was almost certainly raised to consider his uncle a traitor, who was essentially dead to the family, this nephew apparently has a change of heart. Perhaps he was in the crowd when Paul was mob-rushed and beaten to a pulp, and maybe he was disgusted by the injustice of that um, against his own uncle. Perhaps the nephew was in the crowd when Paul was up on the balcony giving the speech, and maybe he was moved and inspired by his uncle's words. Perhaps his mother, Paul's sister, retained some sympathy for her black sheep brother, but kept it to herself for precisely this occasion. And when the moment came for her to defend her brother, she did. Whatever the reason, however it happened, this young man is responsible for saving his uncle's life, for saving Paul's life. Since Paul was an uncharged Roman citizen, he's in chains, he's in, chains, he's in jail, but he's not charged with any crime. So he was given the right to receive visitors in prison. And when he gave instructions to the centurions, because he was a Roman citizen, they listened. Lysias, the, the commander in the barracks, he too demonstrates kindness and gentleness. He takes the nephew by the hand, gently, walks him out and says, what's the matter? Uh, and believes him. Uh, and then gives him advice that would protect him from the fallout of for his betrayal of the assassination attempt. So these are people who you would assume are enemies in the story, are not. Paul's family who hates him, help him. The Romans who were and centurions who were trained to hate, they, they help Paul. And so thanks to one young man's bravery, Paul's life is saved, and eventually the greatest city in the Western world, Rome, would come to hear the saving name of Jesus because of him. It's kind of like the Old Testament story of Esau welcoming his brother Jacob back. Esau and Jacob twins, who Jacob was a trickster and tricked Esau, and Esau was so mad he wanted to kill Jacob, so Jacob fled. And many years later, 
There's a reconciliation. They're, they're literally crossing a field to each other, and Jacob's not sure how Esau's going to handle this, rec- this reconciliation. He thinks, maybe he's still going to kill me, but you know what? I deserve it. But that's not how Esau reacts. Esau embraces his brother, and welcomes him warmly, and forgives him completely. It's a beautiful piece of, of dramatic family reconciliation, of, of, of blood overcoming a history of anger and, and badness. It's love triumphing over hatred. It's life triumphing over death. And that's what we have here. Family overcoming. And so I guess the lesson for us in all of this is this. Faithfully do good to others with courage and compassion, no matter how lowly those around us stoop in their thirst for destruction. That's what Paul's nephew shows. He faithfully does good. He's courageous. He's compassionate. Even though he's probably raised to hate this man, he saves him. And no matter the risk to his own life for going and presenting this information to Paul. Both the nephew and the centurion are unlikely heroes. The nephew is acting contrary to family expectations. And the centurion is a Roman with no care whatsoever for servants of the Most High God. Yet together they save one of the most valuable servants of the kingdom ever, Paul, from a violent and untimely demise. Sometimes heroes are unexpected figures. Jesus himself qualifies. Um, so. Here's the follow-up. Here's the beans to go with your stuffing. How can our courage and compassion form us into unexpected heroes for those around us? So, having heard and believed the plot against Paul, which it wouldn't have been hard for Lysias to believe it because he has seen the murderous rage of the crowd every time Paul speaks or does anything, Lysias takes extreme precautions to safeguard the life of this Roman citizen who's in his care. He sends out a detachment. Okay, Paul's one dude. And Lysias sends out a detachment of 200 infantrymen, so that's fully armed, shielded men, uh, as well as 70 mounted cavalry riders, um, as well as 200 spearmen. So there's 475 soldiers accompanying one man in the dead of night down the road to make sure that he's safe. Does that seem like overkill to you? Because it does a little bit to me. Um, and they marched 35 miles. They, this translation says nine at night. Um, not sure what time, but it was the dead of night. They marched 35 miles to reach the city of Antipatris by that morning. And then once they get to Antipatris, they assume correctly that Paul is safe. So they send the 200, or they send the 400 spearmen and infantrymen back. But he still has, uh, an entourage of 75 mounted cavalry riders to escort him the following 25 miles to Caesarea. So, Lysias is doing everything he can to safeguard the life of Paul. There they meet up with the governor of Judea, Felix, who was the successor to Pontius Pilate. The cavalry hands Felix a letter from Lysias explaining the situation, except did you notice the little detail that Lysias left out of his letter? He kind of fudged some facts, kind of blurred reality there a little bit. Um, he kind of leaves out the part where he was about to torture an innocent Roman citizen how he had Paul strapped up and was going to whip him with the cat of nine tails, possibly to death. He kind of leaves that part out because it could have had severe ramifications for him. Um, he failed. He, he says that he rescued Paul after finding out he was a Roman citizen, but he fails to mention that he found out he was a Roman citizen after he had him strapped up, ready to whip him and beat him to death. That was probably wise of him. But the end result is that Paul, for now, is safe in the care of the most powerful leader in the, in the region, Felix. So that's the story of Acts 23. It begins with Paul in mortal danger because of some unwise vows, 
But through the courage and compassion of a reconciled family member, it ends with Paul safe in the hands of a Roman ruler. But perhaps you notice the sermon title was A Good Story and That's a Promise. Well, I hope it was a good story. It's a captivating story to me. I certainly find it entertaining with murder plots hatched and foiled, surprising characters showing up in time to support the hero. But the title of this sermon is intentionally misleading. That second line, and that's a promise, isn't a response to the first line. It's not me making a vow to you that you will find this story entertaining. It's not my vow to you. Instead, it's an observation. There's a good story, and there is also a promise in Acts 23. And this promise shapes everything about this chapter and the chapters to follow. The passage that we read, we began in verse 12, said the next morning. But the next morning after what? Let's recap the day before Paul's deliverance to the fortress of Felix. So first, falsely accused for breaching the sanctity of the temple by allowing a Gentile in. Beaten publicly by a whole bunch of angry Jewish people. Nearly to death, beaten almost to death, before being rescued by the Romans. He then is allowed to preach the gospel in front of this crowd of angry Jewish people. So he gets to preach the gospel in Jerusalem, which he's always dreamed of. But then he gets hauled off to the torture chamber by the Romans after they boo him down. Um, he only gets out of this torture by revealing that he's a Roman citizen and is given due respect by the commanding officer, who then calls for Paul to defend himself before the Sanhedrin, the Jewish high council, that very day where he shares his faith, while also evangelizing to his Pharisee brothers, which leads to him being nearly torn apart again by the rival Sadducees and then rescued again by the Romans. That's all in one day. That's one afternoon and evening. How's that for a day? There's highs and lows all over the place. He is now in the custody of Lysias after a very physically, emotionally, and spiritually exhausting and painful day. Now, already this morning, we've had a couple of side dish lessons. One about being cautious with our commitments and the other about committing to courage and compassion. But we haven't yet been served the main course, the big lesson, the nourishing truth that we can head out with from this Thanksgiving Sunday and beyond. Perhaps you noticed that the passage written on the title side was Acts 23, 11 to 35, but we never read verse 11. So we're going to do that now. This is verse 11. So this comes between that awful day that I just recapped and the assassination attempt and everything we read at the start. And it says this, The following night, the Lord stood near Paul and said, Take courage. As you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. Even for Paul, that day of suffering in Jerusalem must have been an excruciating low point. Even for Paul, who's used to beatings and imprisonments. Even though he knew he would suffer at the hands of Jewish people in Jerusalem, because it had been prophesied to him over and over, people in the spirit had told him, Paul, you're going to suffer if you go to Jerusalem. So he knew what to expect. But that knowledge doesn't soothe the profound physical pain of being beaten to a pulp by a violent mob and then being tossed in a cold stone floor and ignored. His friends were unable to see him at this point, and the Jerusalem church would have been completely hands-off with the whole situation to preserve their reputation. They're not exactly heroes in any of this. They're the ones who got Paul into this problem in the first place by insisting he do the good Jewish thing. It's the whole reason Paul's in prison, is because his haters had seen him in Jerusalem, or in, in the temple in Jerusalem, and they assumed with, with a Gentile. And so the Jerusalem church, they're responsible for this whole thing, and now they want nothing to do with Paul because they'll look bad if they go and see him. How devastating would that be? 
Paul was, once again, broken and alone in prison for the crime of loving his Savior more than his own life. The agony of his broken body was matched only by the agony of his loneliness. He was a dejected, despondent, depressed man with a very cloudy future ahead of him. We know his future, the assassination attempt and the flight to Felix to safety. We know about that, but the the night that he was broken and battered in that prison cell, he didn't know that would happen. And he was in need of some hope and encouragement. And as was so often the case in critical moments of uncertainty and painfulness for Paul, Jesus showed up with simple words of comfort and purpose. In this case, it's a command. The command is simply, don't be afraid, take courage. It's a command and a plan. The plan is, just as you've testified in Jerusalem, a city that you love so much, so too will you testify about me in the greatest city of them all, the city that you've set your heart and mind on. You will get to Rome. Don't worry about anything. Be courageous because you will get to Rome and there you will make me famous. Jesus shows up with a command and a plan and it changes everything for Paul. For the rest of Acts, Paul no longer comes across as a victim to the events unfolding around him. Rather, he comes across as the master of his circumstances, strong and faithful, even more deeply connected to the true master of the circumstances that he finds himself in. He'll meet with kings, he'll be shipwrecked, he'll be bitten by snakes and almost die. There's some crazy stuff that'll happen to Paul in the the, the next five chapters, but he's not going to come across as a victim in any of them. He's going to come across as master of those circumstances. Why? Because his Lord showed up with a command and a plan. Jesus gave him a promise, in other words. And he believes it. Except, Jesus never exactly calls it a promise, does he? And he never does. I searched on Bible Gateway for the, the number of times that the word promise, vow, oath, and swear show up in Scripture. Promise shows up 225 times in Scripture, in case you're wondering. You weren't wondering, but now you know. Vow shows up 77 times, oath 130, and swear 64. That's not swear like a swear word. That's swear like, I swear to you. So a whole bunch of times these words show up. But not once are they ever ascribed to Jesus. Not once does Jesus, Jesus never says, I promise you this, nor does he say, I swear on God's holy name. He never says anything like that. Sure, he drops the occasionally, truly, truly, verily I say unto thee, But that's only because he's surrounded by a bunch of numbskulls who can't get the picture into their heads. And so he has to say, hey, listen, this is true. You're going to need to remember this. But he never makes a promise. He never makes a vow. He never makes an oath. In fact, the only times Jesus uses the word oath or vow is when he's condemning the use of those words. This is Matthew 5, 33 to 37. Again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. Jephthah knew about this command. He made a foolish oath. The 40 assassins knew about that command. They made a foolish oath. But I tell you, Jesus continues, do not swear an oath at all. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Let your yes be yes. Let your no be no. Anything beyond this comes from Satan, comes from the evil one. That's pretty strong language about making vows and promises. And Jesus, he followed through on this. Not once do we have an occasion where he made a vow or promise to anyone. He simply spoke truth and let his actions back it up. And this is where we find the delicious main course turkey dinner lesson for us this morning. 
This is the thing I hope we can chew on. It's this. Jesus' words are trustworthy and true. Jesus' words are trustworthy and true. Every saying of our Lord Jesus is a promise, even if he never calls it a promise. His yes is yes, his no is no. His commands and his plans are as certain and trustworthy as they are enriching and beneficial. Unlike the 40 assassins, Jesus never makes vows or oaths that backfire and bring disaster. However, on the flip side, like Paul's nephew, Jesus' words continually demonstrate the saving power of courageous compassion and compassionate courage. His words are promises that we can build our lives and our faith upon. They are our firm foundation. And so I want to ask you, and I'll put you on the spot a little bit, what are your famous favorite promises of Jesus? What promises of Jesus found in Scripture are the promises that you cling to? I didn't really give you time to think about this, so it's fair if you don't have I am the way, the truth, and the life. That's a great promise of Jesus. That in me, you will know the way, you will find your life, and everything that is truth is, is in me. What a powerful promise. But he never promises that. He never says, I promise to you I am the way. I make a vow to you I am the truth. Here's my solemn oath, I am the life. He just says it and then backs it up. Thanks, Barb. Anybody else have an idea? Dave. John 10. Yes. I am the good shepherd. I I lay down my life for my sheep. He never says, I promise I will lay down my life. But mere days after speaking it, that's exactly what he does. Yeah. Lays down his life for his sheep. Thanks, Dave. We are the sheep of his pasture. Anybody else? I got a couple here to share with you. Ones that I return to over and over in my faith. The first comes from Matthew 11. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Love that promise. I don't often feel at rest in my life, but the times I do feel at rest are when I take this promise seriously. And Jesus doesn't need to say, guys, I promise you, I promise you, if you come to me, you will find rest. Instead, he just invites you to test it for yourself because he knows that if you really do go to him, you will find the rest that comes with being free from the yokes of guilt, free from the yokes of judgment, and free from the yokes of false righteousness. Go to him and you will know freedom and rest. You will experience it. He doesn't say it's a promise, but it's a promise and you can trust it. Or how about this one from John 4? Whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. It's kind of mysterious, but it's a beautiful promise. Whatever desires we have, whatever we thirst for, are perfected and fulfilled in Jesus. And these holy desires, transformed from selfish to selfless, build up eternal life within us until we erupt like springs of living water. We erupt with the goodness of our God and are welcomed into his home after death. Life at its most fulfilling begins now and it conquers death. How beautiful is that promise? And by the way, he tells it to the last person he should ever be telling that promise to, just like he tells it to us who don't deserve it. That's the promise. And he never says, I promise. He just knows that when we are faithful to those words, we will experience their truth. The last one that I wanted to share with you, John 14. Very truly I tell, there's that truly, truly I say unto you, thing. Truly I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these, because I'm going to the Father. 
And I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name and I will do it. There's that truly, truly I mentioned, but of course he needs to remind them that it's true. He's saying that these, this ragtag group of outcasts, uneducated, backwoods, nobodies, he's saying that this group of 12 will kickstart a movement that will be even greater than anything Jesus himself ever did. You can imagine Peter, for example, hearing that and be like, what? Greater than anything you did? No wonder Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you. That's an easy one to doubt, that we can do greater things than Jesus. But he doesn't need to make it a vow. He doesn't need to promise. He doesn't need to say, I assure you with a solemn oath before my God above, or whatever, that you will do greater things than me. He just tells them how it will be. In him, this unqualified, uneducated group of bumpkins will initiate a movement of courageous compassion that saves countless souls and outlasts thriving empires and transforms the entire world. Greater things indeed. When Jesus died, he had 12 followers. By the time Paul dies, there's already thousands and thousands. Greater things indeed. What a beautiful promise that Jesus never actually promised. So here's the point. All Paul needed to hear in his low point, in his moment of desperation and loneliness and brokenness, all Paul needed to hear was the command and plan of his king, and he was good to go. He had suffered intense physical agony, total emotional anguish, and real spiritual loneliness. He had no idea what was ahead, or if he'd even ever step foot out of this fortress alive again. He had no idea what the future held. If he would have died that night, Paul would have been satisfied. To live is Christ, to die is gain. But he wasn't sure, and he was a broken and depressed man. All he had was prayer and hope, which Jesus honored by appearing before him to say, one day you will preach in Rome just as you've preached here in Jerusalem. That's it. There's no, I promise you, Paul, we're going to get you out of here. No solemn vow that you will be safe. Simply be courageous. You will continue to glorify me in powerful ways. I have a plan. And that was all Paul needed to hear. We too have the commands and plans of our king. We too can be spurred on to glorious acts of courageous compassion because we have faith that his presence is good and true. We too can overcome whatever is in front of us because we know who he is and we can trust his every word. And that's a promise. That's a promise. What a great reason to be thankful. He is with us and we can trust his every word. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for being with us. We do believe you. Help us to fully trust in your words that no matter what we do for you, you will honor. You will honor with life for us and life for those who we go to. Help us to be bold and courageous. Help us to seek your will and to be confident in your will to remove fear to serve you. We are thankful for the story of Paul. We're thankful for how you encouraged Paul. I pray that you would encourage each of us to serve you well with courage and compassion. We pray in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. So happy Thanksgiving, church. Be courageous, be compassionate, do good things. Do even greater things than he did. That's, that's the, the unbelievable promise. All right, go have some pumpkin pie or whatever.